If you have your Bibles still out in Luke 23 and 24, that would be handy. We are going to, it's, I'm not going to say depart from our Acts series because they are so well connected. And that's why I had selected the, this particular text on the resurrection because it's so uniquely and also so uh, inextricably woven together with where we are in the book of Acts in terms of Paul's testimony to Governor Felix. And so we're, as we were looking at that, we'll use that as sort of an introduction as we move forward. But we're reflecting on what we're commemorating here today in terms of the resurrection. And so it's definitely not lost on us that that's exactly where we left off last week with Paul's testimony. He, he says that that is the one thing that he is being tried for, his claim of the resurrection. And so we'll look at that in a minute. But this text that we're looking at today will help us hopefully undergird and support and enhance our appreciation for our journey in Acts that we've been going through with the Apostle Paul. So this is Luke's Gospel. And it's important to know that Luke is the human author of both the, his gospel under his name, but also the book of Acts. Luke is the human author of the book of Acts. So these are woven together in such a way that some have even referred to the book of Acts as Luke part two. They're very, very inextricably woven together. So I want to take uh, our text this morning uh, at the end of his gospel account and see how it weaves together as now Jesus is risen, as we've heard the text read of his crucifixion, and the discovery that the tomb is empty. So we're going to look at, for instance, um, and when we look at Acts chapter 1, verse 11, you don't have to turn there, but there isn't anything at the end of his gospel account that refers to the 40 days, the 40 days that the, the apostles were to, to wait. And so that is taken up in Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. So it's not referenced at the end of his gospel. It's actually in the first chapter of Acts. So this remarkable, rather inscrutable bit of providence that we're experiencing here this morning, I, I don't want to be lost on us anyway when we think about our text last week. Here's, let me bring it back to your attention. We left off with Acts chapter 24, verse 14 to 16. Paul making his case before Governor Felix, right? And so he denies all the charges, and then he says this, verse 14 of 24. But this I confess to you, this, this he's going to admit to Governor Felix, that according to the way, that's the word that the Christians use to refer to Christianity, according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, listen to this, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. Verse 14, believing everything laid down by the law and the prophets. The expectation is if he's talking to fellow Jews, they ought to get it. They have the same copy of their scriptures, our Old Testament, that he does. He doesn't understand what the problem should be. Let's read our text this morning. 
verse 36 of Luke chapter 24. So this is the prelude to Acts, where we are now. Listen to this, and we will work through the similarities as we go through it this morning. As they were talking about these things, now this is the two men on the road to Emmaus. This is the section that wasn't read this morning. Jesus meets the two men on the road to Emmaus, ask them what's up, what are, what are they talking about? Are you the only person in this town that doesn't know what just happened? And so on. And then, of course, he reveals the scriptures to them. And we'll reference that part as we go forward. So we're picking up at the end of that, his time with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And said to them, Peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to to understand the scriptures And said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this very comprehensive, would we consider the whole, telling of your sacrifice, telling of the tomb, telling the story, featuring people, people that existed in in time, in history. Lord, we pray that you help us to draw together, marshal together all the texts of Scripture that we are aware of with regard to the veracity of this story. It's only compelling if we believe. It's only transformational if we believe. It only comes with the power of new life if we believe. And you've given us plenty reason to. There's plenty of reason within the scriptures without having to turn to personal testimony, which in and of itself is powerful, or turn to archaeology, which all also is very powerful, evidentiary. Lord, help us to simply read what the scriptures have to say and believe them as coming from God himself, the one who inspired every word of the sacred text. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see the similarity already, don't we, when we reference Luke or Acts rather 24 and we're looking at the testimony of Paul. You can see when you back up to the gospel what Paul is standing on, what Paul has been made to learn, to know from Jesus Christ 
himself, his own personal tutor in this regard. So we see, necessarily do see the unbroken continuity between our Old Testament and the New. And we think, incrementally we think in boxes, that's how we think. We think of an Old Testament and a New Testament. But what we need to see is that this is seamless. This, there's a continuum in terms of the redemptive narrative that goes all the way to the book of Genesis, in fact. We don't have time to cover all of that ground, but suffice it to say that there is continuity here from the Old Testament into the New, beyond the Gospels, through the book of Acts, onto the epistles, and to our eschatological books that have to do with the end times. So with God, there is, he invented time. So he's not subject to it. It's, he's not looking at his wristwatch, waiting for you and I to do things. It doesn't work that way. Uh, you, you, we make the mistake, as the psalmist said, of thinking he's altogether like us, and he's not, right? So there will be a resurrection of both the, un, the just and the unjust, Paul had said to Governor Felix, This is the first time he's referred to the resurrection of both, and the only time in Scripture, both the just and the unjust. Then he cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. Don't you see? That's what they're opposing, and that's the very neat thing they need to believe. That's the hinge pin of God's salvation, is the fact of the resurrection, the necessity of it. That's why he's crying out in his testimony in Acts 24 before Felix. He loves his fellow Jews. There's going to be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Don't you hear me? Don't you believe? This is what I'm on trial for. You want to boil it down? I mean, they're trying to add different things like barnacles to make this thing so weighty you just must put me to death. This is not what it's about. It is most certainly a theological issue. It is, in fact, a one-topic issue, and that is the resurrection. So we need to see what the Scriptures have to say so we understand the necessity the reality and the historicity of the resurrection so that we can make the same case, the same bold way that the Apostle Paul does. He understands the necessity for one who believes there will be a resurrection, all right? All of us will stand before the one in whom we have to do, the one who is the creator, the one that we have offended in our sin-fallen state. So he gets this, having the truth illuminated to him by the risen Christ himself. That's Paul. I mean, he learned from Jesus himself. He says in Galatians, he didn't learn from the apostles. He learned in his Nabataean wilderness experience outside of Damascus when he finally made it. So, He's been illuminated to these things. He now understands that a Judaism without recognition of its own historical actuality, its historical authenticity, is no Judaism at all. It's just another dead-end false religion. His whole gambit, his whole appeal has been 
I'm not different than the Jews. I am a Jew. But the Jews ought to recognize by the scriptures that God has given us that this man that we put to death is the Messiah. And he is risen. Necessary to know. Necessary to embrace the necessity, the reality, and the historicity of this. So important, and he knows that. Some of you know who B.F. Westcott is, respected theologian. He said this, Indeed, taking all the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there is no single historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection, end quote. And there's Lord Lindhurst. There's a number of other high-standing um, justices in the UK and in other places, even American and others that have tried to disprove the veracity of our gospel story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they've all failed. And they always will fail. There's never going to be a turning over of the spade of the archaeologist that disproves anything in the Bible. It never has. It never will. It only supports it as you go along. So the historicity is important here. We shouldn't fear presenting our gospel to other people as though, boy, I, you know, what if there's some kind of error here or there? It really did happen. But this is... You remember how important it was. We pointed this out in several places during Paul's defenses that we're working through now. It's important that he tell the truth. It's important that he tell the truth. We made that point, I think, last time, in fact, because accepting the verity of the gospel or the truthfulness of the gospel depends upon a witness who tells the truth, yeah? Makes good sense, doesn't it? They're not going to believe somebody who fibs a little bit or tells only part of the truth. No, they must be not just telling the truth, but they must be truthful in character. That's David's point, isn't it, in the Psalms, in Psalm 51? You want truth. I get it now. You want truth on the inward parts. I thought if I just told truth here and there as king of Israel, I'd be okay. No, you want me to be a truthful person. You want integrity? Yes. Why? Because as Paul knows very well now, and so ought we, that it is our witness that's at stake, if we're not. That's why he also says, I keep a good conscience. I keep a clear conscience. He says another. Why does he keep repeating that? That's why. We need to be men and women of integrity. We need to be men and women of purity if we would have people embrace the veracity, the truthfulness of our gospel. And it is true. There's no question. So this lies with us as witnesses. Now this morning, what I want to do with our text from 36 to 49 is break it down. I'm sorry I don't have the, the breakdown before you, but you'll see these things as you go. But if you're those kind of note takers, I encourage you, if you are, I'll give them to you verbally now. We're going to look at the confirmation first. Number one, the confirmation verse 36 through 43. This is the confirmation of everything Jesus had been teaching them. What you see has now happened. Here I am. 
Number two, the illumination. Verse 46, or 44 through 46, the illumination. Apart from Christ, it's impossible. If he doesn't do a work of, of giving us eyes to see the truth, we won't see it. These things have to be illuminated. It had to happen with the two men on the road to Emmaus, and it's got to happen with the rest of the disciples and all of us as well. Number three, the proclamation, verse 47. That's important to know because that's our message. The proclamation. This was their message. And four, as witnesses, the commission. The commission, verse 48 through 49. So this is the commission. This is Luke's version of the Great Commission, you could say. It's what we're all commissioned to do, giving the reality, the necessity, and the historicity of the resurrection. And tag, you're it. You people have been made to know what the truth is. And the truth is meant to be spoken. Speak. What? What? The truth in love. We always think about truth. We always think about the love part. We want to really hang on that. But you must first recognize that that imperative starts with the word speak. We speak up about these things. Paul didn't hold back, and neither should we. So we are witnesses, and we will look at that as we go on as well. So first of all, the confirmation, verse 36 through 43. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, this is the ten apostles. Remember, Thomas isn't there yet. The ten apostles together with the two men from Emmaus. So that makes 12. And then there's probably some others there as well in that room. Now, they're there together. The doors are locked because, as usual, they're petrified. They're afraid that the Jews are going to come get them. But <laughs> their real fear should be on the one that just passed through the wall bodily. How's that done? But he did it, didn't he? This is exactly, if you'll allow me license to speak for him now and paraphrase so that it helps me to understand a little bit better. This is exactly, he could be saying, what I told you must necessarily take place. This must necessarily take place. And now here it is in reality. This isn't just, what do they say? A spirit? Verse 37, but they were startled and frightened, thought they saw a spirit. It's his ghost. It must be his ghost, but the door is still locked. It's still closed. So it makes sense, perhaps, then, that they would have this confusion. Then he said, and he said, verse 38, to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? I could see you doubting, he could say, if this was completely incongruent with what I've been telling you all along. But we're going to look at some places where he told them and told them and told them in, in graphic detail what had to happen. So why are you doubting? Why is that rising up in your hearts? Here's a man, the God man, who can see their hearts. He knows what they're thinking. He knows where they're, he knows where they're weak. And in love, he bolsters that. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't reprove them. He just asks the question. This is a good biblical counselor, right? This is the the good and kind counselor. He asks questions. Why are you doubting? Why are you doubting? See my hands? See my feet? This is God talking. How gentle. How kind. His tolerance of the ignorance, especially given the fact that 
He's standing there. They can see him. They've been told many times that this would have to happen. See my hands and feet, verse 39, that it is I myself. This isn't somebody else. It's not an apparition. It's not a phantom. This is me, the Christ, you know, Jesus, the person that you lived with for three years. In some kind of glorified state, with some kind of physiological properties that allow somebody to pass through a wall like that. Captain Kirk and his outfit are the only ones we know that can do that, right? For a spirit does not have flesh and bones. He's using plain logic here. I'm not a spirit. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, bones as you see that I have. Verse 40, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Here, look. Look, see. It's me. And while they still disbelieved for joy, now that's an interesting statement, isn't it? While they disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Well, that sort of confusion is understandable if this doesn't make any sense. But still, somehow, strangely, you're absolutely thrilled and filled with joy to see him. It'd be like us saying, I can't believe my eyes. I can't believe my eyes. Is it you? Filled with joy and yet having trouble believing, which has been characteristic of them all along, hasn't it been? Which still is with people that claim to be Christians. I don't know about all this. What a pity. So much joy. Even though we don't understand all things. We don't know what the glorified body looks like or is capable of. Paul gave it quite a treatise in 1 Corinthians 15, of course. Helps a lot to read that. We don't have time for it. So Jesus said to them, do you have anything to eat? You understand why he said that, don't you? Yeah, you know, don't you? He loves them. He's going to show them that this is, in fact, him in physical presence. And he ate the fish. Why else would something as banal be in the eternal record? He loves them. He loves these slow, dim-witted men. And I'm so grateful because those are men I identify with. That's, that's my identity group. The dull-witted, that's, yeah. Haven't picked out any pronouns yet, but. Secondly, let's look at the illumination. So here's what's got to happen, right? So we, he, he's perhaps patient with them because he, he's the God-man. He understands that these things had to be, had to do it with the man on the road to Emmaus, right? He had to turn the lights on for them. If you're spiritually dead, you can't see. We shouldn't be hard-pressed to understand the logic there. You can't see at all. You're blind. There's no degrees of prevenient grace that can turn certain lights on. No, you have to be made to see by God himself. You have to be brought to life so that you can see it is, in fact, the Christ Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written 
about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's why Paul says what he says in Acts 24 that I read, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. So Paul understands this. Peter eventually understood this. Uh, Jesus clearly does. So that's the case, that these things are clearly laid out in their scriptures. My words that I spoke while I was with you. Well, here's an example of that in Luke's Testament. Luke 9.22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day, be raised. There's nothing clear, unclear about that, is there? I mean, even I can understand that. That's pretty clear. But watch this. In chapter 18, he goes even further in terms of detail. And taking the 12, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit on. This is some kind of detail, isn't it? Rather not hear these things, but this is detailed. Verse 33, and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. Blind is blind, folks. It's not, you know, I get some of that. No, they don't get it. This saying was hidden from them, the text says. Okay, that's helpful. This is hidden from them. That makes sense, too, with, with the occasion of the men on the road to Emmaus, right? He didn't, they didn't know who he was until God revealed his identity. That's what has to happen. And they did not grasp what he said. Now, this is the third time, by the way, that he's told them these details about what's going to happen to him. The third time. So the angels are the first ones to arrive at the tomb, right? Because they were going to prepare the body. They had to take the day off on the Sabbath. They're back Sunday morning to prepare the body. Luke 24, 6 to 8. He is not here, but he is risen, said the angels. Now, Matthew, Mark, folks, on the one who spoke. Well, these are two angels, these that are referred to by Luke as men, they're angels. And then <laughs> the speaking angel says, remember how he told you? <laughs> now, wouldn't you feel like, you know, head hanging a little bit right there? While he was in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise? Didn't he tell you that? Now the, you've got the angels telling you. And they remembered his words. Praise the Lord. They remembered his words. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 to 4, this is where Paul is making it clear that Christianity is a fulfillment of Judaism. You can see what he's saying here, an unbroken redemptive narrative here in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, where he says, 
Now I remind I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Making the same statement there, albeit more briefly. This is, a, this is the, the completion of Judaism. This is the arrival of their Messiah. And he makes that very clear. And it's going to eventually cost him his life in Rome. So, in fact, the whole thing, the whole issue of well, the whole gospel, the whole redemption narrative falls apart if we lose that one point on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He makes that point as well in verse 12 through 19. Listen to this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. This is quite an argument. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If you're only hoping in the fact, the reality of Christ alone, and not in what he accomplished in his works at the cross and raising himself from the dead, then you're actually somebody to feel sorry for. You, you deserve pity. We all do if we deny that. So there are major religions in our world. There's you know, not only Judaism, but Christianity and Buddhism and Islam and all the rest. But Christianity, and Paul understood this, and we, we learn this through the travels of Paul and his arguments that Christianity is a religion that didn't show up independently on its own. It wasn't created at some point. Islam in the 600s, the early 600s, um, all, all the rest have their own start dates. It's, it's really Judaism part two, if you will. And that's how Paul presents it because it's their scriptures that we have connected to ours that take us all the way in our scriptures to the eternal state where we're all in heaven. But it didn't start independently. It's important to know that. It's important to, to share that with people. Christianity has historical authenticity this way throughout all of the history of the Jewish faith. People have to prove 
from the extant scriptures, their old or what we call our Old Testament, that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. And we've been given a plethora of evidence in the Old Testament that that is in fact he. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now things are going to change. Verse 46, and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So it is very plausible that he opened their minds the way that he did with the two men on the road to Emmaus so that they could understand these things. And we see that as the record goes forward. 24, 25 to 27, where he is talking to the men on the road to Emmaus, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Was it not necessary? So obviously by him saying that in particular, they were struggling with this can't be the Messiah. Because anybody hung on a tree, according to Moses, is what? Accursed. And besides, we, we don't like hearing that. We don't want that to be part of it. It's hard for them to hear. So that's the necessity part. No, you need to understand. It's, you don't understand fully or comprehensively yet, but you can apprehend the things that I'm saying. I'm giving you to understand now that these things must necessarily take place. I must be I must be poorly treated, unjustly tried, even to the details of plucking his beard and spitting on him and punching him. All of those things must necessarily take place. He's trying to show them, at, in this case, the two men on the road to Emmaus, necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Because it is not in the words themselves that we find salvation. It is they who speak of him. So if you don't find the hymn that rises up out of the scriptures, you can memorize the whole of the scriptures and still be lost. There was a little boy. I've told this story before. Little boy in Russia. Back in 1950s, remember that? And uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, the uh, priest there had a, a contest for all the, all the boys. said, whoever can memorize the most scriptures uh, will win an award, be able to get up on stage at the end of our little festival and get an award and all of those fun things. So they diligently went to it. And one little boy, true story, one little boy got up on stage and recited the four gospels verbatim. That's a, that's kids for you, right? <laughs> I, not me, not anymore. <laughs> yeah. His name was Nikita Khrushchev. One of the founding fathers of the atheistic communism it's not in the amount of it's not even in the amount of theology that you can marshal and and gin up in your vast knowledge knowledge alone by itself does what first corinthians 8 1 what it puffs up it panders to pride and pride alone it's it's love 
It's finding the usefulness that theology is to be issued forth from your heart with love because that's his name. And that's what he showed us. That's why these things must necessarily take place. It's a sacrifice. It's a life sacrificed. Our teacher this morning helped us understand that when we were talking about the role of husbands in marriage. It's, it's sacrifice. So he's got their minds open now. Major Old Testament text prophesying the crucifixion. We're not going to look at them all. I'm just going to give you some of the major ones so that you can have them in your notes. Psalm 16, 9 to 11. Psalm 22, verse 1 and verses 6 to 8. 12 to 18. 29 to 31. A good portion of Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm. There's, there's, you can see Messiah raise up in terms of the suffering servant, especially in the book of Isaiah with his role as the suffering servant, with the pinnacle perhaps being Isaiah 53, actually beginning in 52 verse 14 and going through Isaiah 53. There's no mistake in who he's talking about there. How about Zechariah 12.10? You remember this one. And I will pour out. Now, Zechariah, by the way, is some 500 years roughly before Christ was born. Isaiah 700. The Psalms, we're talking about 900 to 1,000 years before the Christ would come. And they're speaking in detail about him and his coming and what would happen to him. How do you turn away from such evidence? And I will pour out on the house of David, 500 BC, this being said, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, who's he talking about 500 years BC? They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Referencing, of course, when Israel is saved, when they finally see and recognize who their Messiah is. So Paul declared to Felix, this is not a sect of Judaism. I imagine he was offended by that. They should know that this is not a sect, an offshoot, some, some spurious offshoot that claims some, some attachment to Judaism only in ways that, that soils Judaism. No, this is, this is legit Judaism, actually. That's what Paul is trying to say. So this is more than a story in the Bible, isn't it? This is... It's not a myth. This is the reality. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, in fact, is an historical fact. And it's necessarily true. It necessarily had to take place. It necessarily is to be believed if we are to appropriate the grace, the new life that's available to us. So what is our proclamation, number three? Here it is in one verse, verse 47. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. 
We've enjoyed seeing the record of this for the past three years. We've been walking through the record of the book of Acts. So, verse 47 says that it's for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That's why we, Jesus accomplished what he did. During the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you have sort of the last of what would be considered the Old Testament prophets. It's not just John the Baptist. Even before him was his father. What's his name? Zechariah. That's right. You don't remember him as much as you remember the name John the Baptist, right? Because he's like a key pivotal uh, picture of an Old Testament prophet that's bringing things into the new. He's making the way for uh, the Messiah to come. But Zechariah had a prophecy. He said in verse 77 of Luke chapter 1, to give them the knowledge of salvation to his people, talking about what Messiah is coming to bring, the knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And then after his son is born, becomes an adult, and he starts his work as this transitional prophet, he says this in Luke chapter 3, 3 to 4. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. You're going to see this over and over again, because this is, this is, the rub right here. This is the main point of why we embrace and believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's for the opportunity to repent and be forgiven. Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. So there he's referencing the Old Testament prophets as well. It's amazing, though, after that, I'm not going to take the time to read it, but after that, listen to what he cites in that same text in chapter 3. Right after what I just read you in verse 3 to 4, he cites Isaiah 40, 3 to 5, Isaiah 57, 14, Isaiah 49, 11, Isaiah 42, 16, Isaiah 45, verse 2, Isaiah 52, verse 10, Zechariah 4, 7, and Psalm 98, 2 to 3. So now things are exploding is the point. As these things are being re- revealed, the, 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 the people that were with him, the disciples and, and others are starting to make connections according to the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus reads, remember when he went to the synagogue, right? And he reads Isaiah 61, 1 to 2, sits down and says what? What does he say there? Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is a marvelous transitional time. It's an amazing, powerful transitional time. You have Messiah is not only risen, he is speaking now in the synagogue, standing before the rest of the Jews as the God-man, reading Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, and saying this scripture has been fulfilled. In him. Jesus on the cross. Chapter 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. It's about forgiveness. It's about the opportunity to repent of our sins and be forgiven. Why would such a gracious offer be rejected? I don't know. Why would somebody want to kill the Apostle Paul? 
Have we underestimated the depths of depravity? We're starting to see the degree to which evil can take place, haven't we? It's been even sometimes graphically shocking to us as we see some of the things that are going on today over in Eastern Europe. Once the, these apostles got it, however, we see in Acts as we're going through it, they're making sense now out of Scripture, so they're exploding with powerful proclamations. It's like it's just cascading out one right after the next. You remember uh, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. He's in verse uh, 14 to 36. You can see where he is uh, citing. He ends up citing Joel. He's citing Joel 2, 28 to 32 there. So he's making statements and then he's citing scripture. It's really remarkable. And then in chapter uh, 2, verse 22, where he says, Men of Israel, this is in his sermon, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. There's no question about this. With mighty works and wonders and signs. They didn't even have to read the scriptures that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that they would have heard through their scriptures. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him from the dead, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held. And then, of course, he cites David in the Psalms because he turns and says that, David is, in fact, in the grave. And as a matter of fact, any human being coming from his line will end up rotting in the grave. David will, and all of his heirs after him, but the God-man will be in the line of David, and he will not see corruption. So they're, they're getting what their scriptures are about. It's really remarkable to look at. So he, can, you can, he connects... Uh, 22 to 24 that we just read with Psalm 16, verse 8 to to 11. So these Davidic Psalms that are now coming to life for them, you can only imagine how powerful these sermons were that they were preaching. In verse 33, he connects that. Verse 33, he says in his sermon, uh, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then he goes and cites, of course, Psalm 110, verse 1 from David again. So they get it now. He says at the end, watch how this concludes. Acts 2 37 to 39, he's concluding his sermon. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, what? Repent. The message hasn't changed in two millennia. It's still the same. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for what? The forgiveness of sins. It's not a hard message to remember, really. Repent and receive Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is, by the way, the promise from the Father. That continues to be repeated as well. You'll see that repeated over and over. You're going to receive the promised Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, 
Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, he must do it. He must call and he must illuminate his word because these things the natural man cannot understand because they are spiritually appraised or spiritually discerned, right? 1 Corinthians 2.14. It's impossible for them to understand. So we needn't get frustrated with the people that are otherwise reasonable people, but they just outright reject the message altogether. So Peter, after his arrest and proclaiming truth before the council, in Acts 5 then, verse 30 to 32, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, there it is again, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand, as we recited in the Apostles' Creed, as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. There the two are together. They necessarily go together. There's no repentance. There's no forgiveness of sin without repentance. It's turning from a former life to your new life in Christ. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So Paul says the same thing in Acts 13, 37 through 39, where he's in Pisidian Antioch, and he preaches a sermon a lot like Stephen's in that he covers a lot of the history. It's important. History is important to the Jews. That means it's, it's in the scriptures where you find that out. That means it should be important to us. So the historicity, the historical actuality is important to us. It happened at a place in time. And we need to believe that. Finally, number four, this is the commission given in verses 48 through 49. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of the Father to you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And now we can turn and connect that with Acts chapter 1 verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. Verse 8 of chapter 1 of Acts. See the connection here. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. earth. Verse uh, 33 of chapter twenty. Chapter 2 in Acts, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. So this is repeated over and over again. You must see the interwoven nature of the Gospels and the record, the historical record of the church, which is the book of Acts. They're intentionally crossed over. They're intentionally stitched together. They're intentionally woven together. They're not repeated repetitives so that you can think, boy, when is this thing going to be over? Because I'm hungry. It's important. It's, Im- it's important to your apologetic. It's important to your witness because that's another repeated term and that belongs to all of us. So the mandate to the church for the world is to be a witness for Christ in the proclamation of the gospel. That's what we see. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 21. Here we get our marching orders. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, 
God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Through us. Therefore, be ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. How remarkable is that? What do we have to do? Why nothing? You have to repent and believe for the forgiveness of sins. That's it. That's your proclamation. That's mine. If we would only speak to those who are lost. God help us to speak. The end of Luke 24, 50 to 53. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And now you can see as Axis opened up, you see an unmistakable connection. This, my brothers and sisters, has been given to us to continue. Greater works than these, Jesus said, will you do. Not greater in power, but greater in extent. 2,000 years of the proclamation of this simple yet life-changing message. Let me give you a closing benediction from Hebrews 13. 20 to 21, and we'll pray. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this apologetic, for this, this able defense that you've given us. More than able. We have far more information, far more truth. But we, Lord, reflect this morning not only on the empty tomb, which we are eternally grateful for. Because of it, we have eternal life. But we recognize, therefore, Lord, from the scriptures, from the whole plenipy of scriptures, Lord, that we, it is necessary that we must believe the reality and the historicity of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God help us to do that. In your name we pray. Amen.